Good evening. We are in the seventh chapter of the book of Nehemiah. This long list of genealogy, but I'm not going to do it to you guys tonight. The walls have been built now. Tobiah, he's inside the walls. He's the rat that's inside the walls. And he's, what he's doing, he's writing letters back to the elders of Judah, the very people who should have more sense to, to think so little of Nehemiah or to even to be in fear of him. I kind of like Nehemiah. He's a tough guy. I don't know what he was like outwardly, but inwardly, I think he was a lion. I think he was made up of that super glue. He, he stuck together in the Lord. He, he never let things bother him so much. He was a tough guy. So verse 1 starts out. I'll read verse 1 through 4. Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani. I think that's his brother in the Lord, and Hananiah. I know they got confused with those names all the time. Leaders of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut let, let them shut and bar, bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not built. It's not so difficult to be cynical in the situation these guys are in. They're, they're fearful of attacks. And I'm speaking of personal attacks, uh, words attacking them. Nehemiah is never allowed to rest in this book. He, he doesn't get a moment of luxury, not a moment of ease or passivity. He has to be watchful all the time. He has to be prepared for battle all the time. He has to be equipped for sudden attacks, but he had the frame of mind that we see in Nehemiah 6.16 when it says everything he had that he and his friends had done was accomplished with the help of our God. That's who Nehemiah found his strength and leaned on. He knew he lived his entire life in the presence of God. And if we could ever understand that, whether it's night or day, whether you're in the darkness or in the light, we live in the presence of God. Nehemiah have taught us that we must have a healthy realism about us, a realism about suffering and temptation in this life. I don't know about you guys, but life is hard, and it can get worse, and that's not attractive when it comes to the gospel now. Jesus Christ told us these things but it's very realistic to the believer as he walks daily life. A, a Christian should know from the beginning, if they don't fail to understand that this world is about suffering, that this world is about satanic attack, when those things come upon us, we will wither in the sun. 
Realism about life and spiritual warfare is needed on our part if we are to prevent uh, a catastrophic fall or to be paralyzed about the things that come our way in this world. Nehemiah lived with one eye on the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, and it assured him of the ultimate victory despite temporary setbacks, and we will have those in this life. It was his hope that sustained him, and the same hope sustained Jesus Christ under pressure. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 2, it says, For the joy that was set before him, speaking of Jesus Christ, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And it was that hope that Peter speaks about when he says in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, he exhorts us, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. That means always be thinking as much as you can on spiritual things, on the scripture. Let your mind be saturated with those things. And then he says, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is, brought, that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to meet him face to face one day. It is not so much Nehemiah is worried about the future, but he's worried about the presence. He seems focused on that. God will help him in the future. He will help us in the future, and he will help us right now where we're at. He has helped him so far as it is and will be with him all the way and get this wall and everything accomplished. Peter makes a similar point in 1 Peter. He says in 1 Peter 1, 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while down here, if need be, you have been grieved by various, the New King James says manifold trials, manifold temptation. The Greek word is pokilos, and it means uh, in difficult times, God shows up, his grace shows up. When you're thinking it's going to come in one way, it may come in another way. When you think you're going to get help from this brother or sister in Christ, he might send someone else that you weren't even thinking of, but his grace comes in multi-various graces. You can expect that. All we have to do is wait on him, and that's what Nehemiah is, is doing. His response is to the mounting campaign against him. Remember, he, was, was, he has redoubled the building of the wall in the city, building the walls and setting the gates in place. Brian talked about that. But it was a prelude to the work that still had to be done because as, as the diameter of this wall was so wide... The problem is now they don't have that many people in. The people were coming from the outskirts. They had left their families to build this wall. And now that they have the walls surrounded, houses are still in a rubble. They might have one or two coming together. But it's really nobody inside the wall. And that's what has Nehemiah kind of riled about it. The building of the temple, remember, under the oversight of Zerubbabel and Ezra, was for the purposes of establishing a center of godly worship. When you think of the temple, you always think of worship and sacrifices that was going on. So to be there and to set the walls up, it meant something. Worship has started back. The real goal from the very beginning was the worship. The whole point really of redemption is to bring sinners into a place where God 
is worshiped in a manner that, has pre, that he has prescribed. Uh, it says God's glory is the chief of man. That's what we're created for, to glorify God. And so we must be careful. I'm reminded of people always talk about church funds to build a church, church buildings, but we have to be careful. The church, the building is not the church. It's the people that's in the church. That's what's important. So we can't get caught up on the structure, the brick and mortar of the church. We have to worry about the people that are inside. They are the church. We are the bride of Christ, and we must be in tune with helping and ministering to them. Our chief end is to praise God. We were created for this, and our sense of fulfillment is warning without it. Nehemiah saw this goal with clarity and focus. The building work now completed, he sets his face to reform spiritually now life in the community. Verse 2 says, he says that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hananiah and Hananiah. Kind of reminds me of Anthony. What was Anthony's brother's name? You know what I'm talking about. God. <laughs> Anthony and the twins. Do you remember? Austin. That's what it reminds me. And, and I would get those two confused. And so Hananiah and Hananiah, I bet they got them confused a lot, but he says something good about him. He says, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Those are two good reasons to give someone responsibility. I'm sure that Hananiah, when he came to Nehemiah, remember he came from the beginning. He never thought, I don't think, he would be in the position he's in now. The wall has been built. They've been in battles. They've been in all of these things. And now because he was faithful, Nehemiah turns this responsibility over to him. He feared God, and that's always a good start. And he was faithful. Verse 3, and I said to them, do not let the, the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors. The idea is when evening comes and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. So they put up these guards on the wall and everyone was over against their houses. Verse 4 says, now the city was large and spacious. That's one of the problems. Because remember, they don't have that many people in there. But the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. And here comes the, the stewardship, the mindset of Nehemiah here. The walls are done. All of this is taken care of. Everything's up. What do we do now? Do we slack off? Do we just kick back and relax? It says, even Satan, when he tempted Jesus, when he couldn't get him to sin, he says, I'll come back with a greater opportune time. And that's what the enemy always does. He, he, he might retreat for a while, but he's always going to come back. Nehemiah, knowing this, he says, we've got to get busy. If we don't watch out what comes through the gate, what the sense of rebuilding these walls mean, the picture of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, you put up walls to keep certain things 
out. You put up walls for safety, and that's what he's doing. What this, what's the sense of having walls if you're not going to exercise good stewardship and watch the gates? We let all kind of things come in to our eye gate, to our ear gate, when we should be alert and watching, filling our minds, meditating on the scriptures, things like that. And this is what he says. He says, don't unlock those gates until the sun is up and it's hot because anything you let in should be able to walk in the daylight. And that's a good rule. You're fortifying yourself. You're establishing yourself in the Lord. What can I let into my life? Anything you let in, you should be able to let people see it, enjoy it in the daylight, in the broad daylight. If you got to sneak it in, if you got to do, do it when nobody's watching, then it's something we need to take to the Lord in prayer. I'm not saying that we don't slip and fall. We all do. That's not the point, though. But now that the, the city is set up, these things are put in place. There's an acknowledging of those that are faithful, those who fear God. And now there's a responsibility ready in regards to these walls. That's the gates we need to watch. They're to be open after the sun is up. So anybody who comes in, whatever or whoever enters the city should be able to do it in broad daylight. Not have, you don't have to sneak in, and when it becomes dark, the wall should be clocked and closed, and there should be guards on the wall watching. That's what we should do individually. Watch and pray. Jesus said that you enter not into temptation. And there, you should not only have a watch over your house, but we should be watching our neighbors and concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not being fruit inspectors, but praying that they are living a holy life and they don't stumble and fall. That's a responsibility for all of us. We should care about our home and care about our neighbors and care about what goes on around us. So we have an interesting picture here. It kind of reminds me of Ephesians. Paul says, you take the shield of faith and all this. And then he says, having done all, you've got all the armor on. He says, having done all, then stand. The possibility is to stand no matter what comes our way. Having done all to stand, that's the point. And the word means to stand against any and everything that comes our way. I hope we live our lives in a way where we have some things that we stand against. It's easy to be for things, but it's when you go against things, it's when you're going against the grain and the world begins to look at you in a peculiar way. But stand we must. So that's a great exhortation here. Verse 5 says, Then my God put it into my heart, Nehemiah, to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people that they might be registered by genealogy. It reminds me of going into a file cabinet, nothing to do. So I just go into a file cabinet and start looking at papers. And we got a lot of papers in our file cabinets, crumbled up papers. And you start throwing them around and you come across something that's very important. That must have been sort of what Nehemiah was doing. 
It says that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it, these are the people of the province who came back from captivity, of those who had been carried away whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and who returned Jerusalem, who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Verse 7, those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua. This is probably 100 years later, again, about 100 years earlier, Nehemiah, and that's not the Nehemiah that's writing this. It says, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpareth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Banna. The number of the men of the people of Israel was this. And like I said, I'm going to spare you guys these names. So verse 8, when it says a parosh, it's 2,172. Verse 9, the sons of Shephaniah. I like watching those cooking shows, so this guy must have been a, a chef, Shephaniah, a good Hebrew cooking chef. It was, they made sure they had plenty of those guys, 372 of them. They were, they were eating good. And go to verse 38, if you don't mind. There are all these families. That's what we're looking at. It was the same uh, genealogies of the families. I think it was in Ezra chapter 2. It might have been Ezra chapter 5. But that's what we're looking at. And by the way, it's interesting, the children of Sinai, it says 3,930. That was the largest number of any family. And we know little of either the village or the persons. One thing I admire among many, I admire about my mom and my dad, anybody of any age, it was... They always knew their family. I'm reminded on Sundays afternoon, and still we get together, and I'm amazed at how mama can rattle off her aunts and her uncles and her nephews, and she might say, I, might, I could be talking, I said, man, I saw so-and-so walking down the street the other day, and the first thing usually comes out of her mouth, oh, that's your cousin, or oh, that's your niece. I'm saying, I don't know this guy. <laughs> but she knows it, it, it was important to him. And, and of course, it was important for the Jews. We're going to see that. But it, it should be important to all of us to know where we come from in family lines and especially in the body of Christ. That's how you really get to know one another. I'm, I'm reminded of Jonathan when I went over to his house. I forget. Was it Thanksgiving? And I met your, your, was it your dad? And I said, wow, just family. And we should, we should just really understand that this is bloodline and it runs deep and it's important to the Lord. He put you exactly where he wanted you in the family he wanted you in. And I should care a little bit more about that. But they, they definitely do that here. Verse 39 uh, takes us to the priests, the children of Jedidiah of the house of Jeshua, 973. Now, these are important because of the worship that needed to start again. Look at verse 43. It says, only 74 of the Levites. How sad. The, the people who were supposed to serve in the temple 
all of those things, instruct the people in the word, only 74 return. I, I got a feeling they were living pretty well in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. They, 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 they had started their, uh, the houses, the, the, where they would go teach the word. Somebody help me out synagogues, that's where it started. They had started all those and they were relaxed and they didn't want to go back and work hard and labor and teach the people. And it says only 74 of the Levites, no doubt many of them had fell into a lethargy. Remember, this is the same genealogy that we read back in Ezra. There are several Slight differences. Brian would have loved to got got in this chapter because he's a genealogy guy. I'm just going to say, hey, the names had changed, but you could expect that over 50, 70 years. Some theologians says the names changed because some of them left, so they had to mark them out, or there are more people of the same names, and it gives all of these reasons why, but the names had been altered greatly. Look at verse 44. The singers, it says the son of Asap, 148 singers. And by the way, 18 times in the book of Nehemiah, the singers are mentioned. And throughout church history, anytime there is a revival or reconstruction, a rebuilding of things that are essential to the church, there's always a rebirth of music, of new hymns, uh, of music, and that's what's happening here, that accompany that. So here in the book of Reconstruction, 18 times we'll see the singers are mentioned. The porters in verse 45, which are the gatekeepers, they were there and they guarded the gates. The Nethanims in verse 46, and they are David's established, he established them to, to, to help the Levites in their service in the tabernacle, and they're still there. Now, the temple, maybe these are of the lineage of the Gibeonites. We're not told sure. Look in verse 57. It says, the children of Solomon's service, servants, he has specific servants. They are still there in the process. Down in verse 63 to 64, it says, and of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Koz, the sons of Barsali, who took a wife of the daughters of Barsali, the Gileonite, and was called by their name. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. Now, that tells you the type of man Nehemiah was right there. God had the right man. The hand of the Lord was upon Nehemiah. I think if anybody else that the hand of the Lord was not upon, especially in this event right here, I believe they would have caved because he had to tell a lot of people, if you're not registered, you, you, you can't serve. I better keep my mouth closed because I'll get in trouble. But you cannot serve. <laughs> that was the way it, it, it was. And just to, God is so meticulous because this means something. I'm sure they say, oh, you're prejudiced, you're, you're this, you're that. But I'm so glad God kept it that way. We have a pure 
word, an undefiled word of God. We don't have to know it all. We'll never know it all. We don't, we don't have to know the reasons why, but it was very important to God that he knew who the priests were. And even to this day, if you're not a Cohen, you're not going to be serving when the last temple comes up. I wouldn't want to be serving during the last temple anyway, but that's another story. So you had to have the Levi jeans. Wranglers would not work. So they weren't allowed to officiate. Verse 65, and the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy thing, which you know the priests were allowed to, till a priest, so they give, give them opportunity. If we find a priest who knows these things, till a priest could consult with the Urim and Thummim. Now, that's very interesting. Even then, the Urim and the Thummim was used. I only have one question tonight. What was the Urim and the Thummim? What do you think it was? Anybody answer that question. Don't keep me here all night. Wasn't it in the priest? Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Probably, we, and we really don't know. Most scholars say it's a black or a white stone, and they would ask the Lord, a question it had to be a yes or no. Or should. David used it. Remember when David, uh, the, I forget, gosh, I should know this. But some group of people had came in and, and taken David's and his men families. And David said, when they were about to stone David, and David said, bring, bring the Urim and the Thummim here. And he asked, oh, should I go? And he said, yes, you should, should go. Should, will I be victorious? Will I recover all? And he said, yeah, you will recover all. Even then, they were using the Urim and the Thummim. So God, it was kind of like divining. Some people say it was a black stone and a white stone. That's where you get black ball from, I think. And they would just ask yes or no questions, and they would pull it out. And if it was white stone, it means yes. If it was a black stone, it meant no. But even through all that, God answered them. God took note of that because God has said, hey, when the priest wears his attire and, and they stood for lights and reflection. Some people say they probably glowed. I don't know. I'll, have, I'll find out when I get there. But that's what they're using here. So even if a priest would say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Levite, sooner or later they were going to toss the Urim and the Thummim out there. And they didn't want to have to agree with that. They didn't want to have to deal with that. So they were probably mostly honest about that. But that's what's going on right now. Verse 66. Although the whole assembly was 42,360, the Lord knows. Besides that, men, servants, maid servants, whom there was 7,337, and they had 245 singing men, singing women among the servants. So it's amazing. God makes a distinction even between the men and women when they're singers. Their horses, just in case you're wondering, 736. Their mules, 245. Their camels, 435. It's amazing they had more donkeys than any of them. I would have tried to, well, not multiply horses. 6,720 donkeys. But they had a lot of engineering and landscaping and, and, and cultivating and all these things they had to do with these donkeys. 
that was very important. So it tells us now in verse 70 down to 73 about those that contributed. We had similar things in Ezra as they were doing the building. It says, and some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, and 530 priestly garments. Some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas, and 2,200 silver minas, and that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. Remember when Ezra pulls up? And, of course, Nebuchadnezzar and all of them, God had put on their hearts to give them this money. And when when, uh, Ezra pulls up to weigh it and everything, they tell him, hey, you can go in and leave, and Ezra's says, hey, no, I'm staying right here until everything is counted. I've got to give an account back to Nebuchadnezzar. And it's cool. I guess everything came out right. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the Nethanim, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. So we, we get to this point. The walls are built. The gates is in place. Nehemiah has gone through the process of conviction When he was back in Persia, then that long journey took place. They had the combat with with, uh, Samballot and the guys, the the contest with the enemy. And now he's coming to the point where the walls are built and it's time for a consecration. The walls have been built, but he's still got families inside the wall who needs to know the Lord. The things now we need to know, again, Jerusalem is more than walls and gates. That's the physical part of the city. But those that indwell Jerusalem, the few people that are there, still need to be cared for, still need uh, the word of the Lord given to them. And in chapter 8, the word of God is going to be built back into their lives. We need the word of God continuously in our lives. And it's interesting to watch the process, and the details, no doubt very important for us today. So this is the seventh month in chapter 8. It says, verse 1, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra, still alive, it's been 14 years before Nehemiah, told Ezra the scribe to bring the book. And, of course, literally, It was the scroll. Once again, he's going through his filing cabinet. He finds this piece of paper, this scroll rolled up, the scroll of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. Ezra, you know, he may have only been, that may have only been the existing scroll, the only scroll left that we have here, and he found it. The Lord allowed him to find it. Ezra, it tells us in chapter 7, verse 1, that he had already prepared his heart to seek the Lord. And I think that's why he found the scroll. Anytime we want to know the Lord or walk closer to the Lord, we have to prepare our heart to seek him. And if we continue to walk with a a prepared heart, ready to just suck in and be like a sponge pad and just seek in the words of the Lord, he'll speak to us. 
And that's why I believe Nehemiah finds this. It says, it says in Ezra 7:10, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. That's to inquire of it, to study it, and to do it, to obey it, and to teach statues and ordinances in, in, in Israel, knowing that was his heart. While he's looking, while he's cleaning, while he's doing things, knowing what's in his heart, he finds the book of the law. That's the way God always works. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. If we're seeking, Jesus says, when you seek me with your whole heart, then you'll be found by me. So it's not only seeking of coming to know him as our Lord and Savior, it's seeking him in, in, in wanting his wisdom, in wanting his knowledge, in wanting to walk more and more like him. If I'm in front of the TV watching football all day long, I can't pray and say, Lord, I, I, I need to hear you. I need to, I, I need you. I need to hear from you when I'm not doing the things to hear from him. But it's when I'm meditating on his word. Lord, I don't like my behavior. I don't like my attitude. Lord, would you change me? I, I, I need to be changed, Lord. I, I need to more, be more sensitive. I need to be more kind. I need to be more gentle. I need to be more all, all of these things, Lord. And, and I, I hate the way I am. Would you do something about it? It's when I'm seeking him. He will show up. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. And that's what he does here. So we could understand it. They knew, they knew Ezra was the kind of man who had given his own life to study the word of God so we could understand it, then to do it, and then to teach it to the nations. Now, it said in the seventh month, all the people gathered and listened. It doesn't say they were called. This is the strange thing about this. They could have been called, but what the word says they came to the water gate, and they stood there, 40-something thousand, maybe more people. Can you imagine that? We come in here one Wednesday, and the whole church is full. <laughs> and I tell Pastor Brian and Pastor Jonathan, hey, what's going on? What's going on here? That's exactly what they say they think happened. They were hungry for the word of the Lord. And I think it was because of one man's heart, his heart. It says in verse 1, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. 42 probably thousand people. Water, I tell you guys in the scripture, always when you're drinking water, it speaks of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 7, 37 through 38, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. But when it comes to the washing of the water, it's always a picture of the word of God. So it's interesting they're gathering to the water gate six times in this chapter. We have the idea of understanding. God said, my people perish for lack of knowledge. He wants them to understand something here. They're gathering at the water gate. In verse 2, it says, they were gathered there 
they were gathered there, those who could hear with understanding. In verse 3, again, it says, those who were attentive could understand. In verse 7, it says, the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. And then in verse 8, it says, they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. One more in verse 13, it says, now on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to understand the words of the law. And again, in verse 12, it says, and all the people went their way to eat and drink to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. I think it was the Apostle Paul. We'll be looking at that Sunday if I'm living. The Apostle Paul says, even though I speak in tongues, I wish it, it, that, that it, for anybody who could understand, I would just say five intelligible words. It doesn't matter if I speak in tongues, nobody can understand. So it's always the proclaiming of the word, the intelligible words. So they gather themselves at the water gate, no doubt near the Gihung Spring on the east side of Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley. It says, and they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men and women. God draws a distinction there, men and women, and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. That's October through September through October. That's Tishri as we head into this chapter. The first day of the seventh month is Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, the beginning of the new year. The tenth day of the seventh month is the Feast of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Verse 3, then he read it. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I'm not going to read any more of that chapter. I want you guys to, that's going to be a good chapter right there. <laughs> Brian always gets the best chapter. But are we, are, we, <laughs> are we hungry for the word? You know, God will pour his wisdom, his knowledge, his spirit, and give it more and more to us if we're hungry. If we just get into that rut where, hey, I'm going to read a chapter today or two chapters a day and go about my way, well, he'll, he'll let you do that too. You'll become dry real quick. So let's just pray that we're hungry for the word of God. That's what's going to change our lives. That's first and foremost for me. That's what I want. I don't want to be the same victor I am a year from here. I don't want to be like that. And it, and it takes me yielding to the Holy Spirit and reading his word and allowing it to be applied to my life. I want to see brothers and sisters grow in Christ together here. I could care less, huge church, not huge church, but I want us to be a mature church, and I want us to be a church that loves one another and quick to forgive 
and quick to forget. And that can only happen through being in the word and being in prayer and letting the Holy Spirit have effect in our lives. It's just not an... We're going to need... We're going to need everyone here. I said it before. I was saying it at Gwinnett. I believe before I leave here, if I live a decent life, 70 years, 60, 70 years. I'm, well, I'm already 60, but I said 70 years. <laughs> 70 years, Lord. Uh, I might not see this, but you guys will see it. There, I believe it's going to come a time where it's going to be tough. It's going to be brothers and sisters in Christ sharing food, sharing houses, sharing things with other brothers and sisters. And we, we've got to get along. And we've got to, we got to give grace. Those are the things because that's, that's why we're here. While the world is rummaging and tearing up stuff and breaking into buildings and pulling stuff out, we've got to be the people who are doing the right thing and, and, and sharing with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the only way we can do that is sitting by ourselves with our Bibles and letting the Lord pour into us. That's, that's what it's about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you for the worship music. Lord, I'm, I'm reminded again how the worship was playing at the gates. I'm sure people were down. I'm sure people were saddened. And the worship music was there to soothe them, to bring relief and let us let everybody know that God is in control. He's on his throne and he's the provider for us. No need to worry, no need to fret, no need to fear. God is in control. And all he wants us to do is to be kind and love one another as Jesus Christ has loved us. He'll do the rest. I pray for restore that we would be a people who set aside judgment, even being offended, and say, Lord, here I am, use me. Use me to a greater capacity that I've allowed you to use me now, Lord. And it's for his praise and glory I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.